Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. We had some economic data today, existing home sales, uh, initial jobs claims. Each came in just, I would say, slightly weaker than expected. Nothing major, but again, on the margin, a little bit uh, weaker. To kind of break down what we're seeing on the economic front, we welcome our good friend, Danielle DiMartino Booth. She's a chief executive officer and chief strategist at Quill Intelligence. She joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Danielle, on the margin, what's some of the recent data telling you? Well, there's, there's good and there's bad. Uh, you know, the Powell printing press is is powerful. And uh, I, I think that it is it is the Fed's not QE that is a much greater force in propelling the nascent recovery that we're seeing on the industrial side. Empire State, Philly Fed this morning, we're seeing future inventories rise appreciably. That tends to be a precursor to ISM new orders increasing. That's going to be very well received by markets because they're going to say, okay, we've escaped the third industrial recession of the current longest expansion in U.S. history. You know, the flip side are some of the things that we're seeing coming out of initial jobless claims, continuing jobless claims. We're falling very closely because if continuing jobless claims stop falling, the improvement in the labor market has been exhausted. So we've seen seven straight weeks of of that stagnation, continuing jobless claims are up 0.7%, so pretty hard to see on a graph. But nevertheless, they're, they're up for the first time since December of 2009. And for example, in this morning's existing home sales report, we saw homes priced under $250,000. We saw those sales fall. That's not what Jay Powell wants. Jay Powell wants for his transmission mechanism of lower interest rates to work for the people who need to buy homes. So this doesn't all sound absolutely dreadful when it comes to the consumer because we still are near historic lows and very full employment. What is the practical takeaway from the bottoming out or sort of the, the hitting of a, of a sort of peak perhaps in the consumer? Yeah, I think I, I think what the message is, and again, initial jobless claims have surprised the upside now for two weeks running, 227, 227. Um, these are the highest levels we've seen since early uh, this year. But I, I think that the takeaway is that we have had the most extraordinary expansion in U.S. labor market history. I mean, it blows away prior cycles by a mile. And a lot of that has had to do with the skills mismatch and how very valuable any employee has been to companies and how how hard they've held on to them through these ups and downs in the economy. So for us to see companies finally relenting and pushing through the beginnings of layoffs, I think is concerning because companies have been so remiss to let go of their employees. So just looking at the Fed funds futures rate um, after the uh, Fed minutes were released yesterday, looks like the market's discounting a, a rate cut maybe sometime mid to third quarter next year. September 2020. Right. Do you think the Fed can wait that long based upon maybe some of the rolling over a little bit? You know, I, I think that uh, we have to bear in mind, John Williams is the vice chair of the Federal Open Market Committee. So he's technically second in command, not Rich Clarida, who's vice chair of the board. Um, and his comments, I felt a few days ago, were very dovish in nature. And I think that the market may be over discounting how data dependent that the Fed is going to be and whether or not they will be forced. Uh, and we, we have no idea what December is going to bring in terms of the repo market and liquidity issues and mm. year end window right. dressing at banks. We don't know how much disruption there might be going into the new, new year and how 
whether or not that September 2020 is realistic. So, you know, when you came in here, we were talking about this bottoming out and some of the data having to do with the consumer, some signs of brightness in the industrial sector. Right. And you said that you see a shift coming where the consumer, which has powered the economic expansion, is going to start deteriorating in terms of its economic condition. And we're going to see a resurgence in industrials. Can you right. explain a little bit further? And I'm, you know, I'm not... I'm not certain how strong it's going to be. If you look, for example, at manufacturing powerhouse Germany, it did not slip into recession. And I think Germany, Germany is a great barometer for our industrial sector because we've been lagging. We've been following what happens in Germany. And what we're anticipating right now is stagnation overseas, not a major rebound. So you know, we might rebuild stockpiles in the coming months. That's going to be, again, seem very, very favorably. The market's favorite leading indicator is ISM new orders. And uh, one of the reasons markets got a little shaky was because we had three months in a row of negative prints on ISM new orders. That popping back above that 50 line between expansion and, and contraction, I, I think would be seen as favorable. I want to see how much momentum it's going to have going into the year, whether there's going to be follow through because we're not seeing coming out of Detroit what we would prefer with the with the US automakers. That's gonna count next year. Danielle DiMartino Booth, thank you. Thank you. Really smart. Uh, Chief Executive Officer and Chief Strategist at Quill Intelligence, uh, also a former Fed uh, researcher and employee over in Dallas. There is a consensus of sorts heading into 2020 that it will be a pretty good year, uh, potentially even double digits yet again with respect to returns on U.S. equity indices, although perhaps Europe may outperform. But how contingent is this on a trade deal, on a lot of things uh, that are all but certain? Joining us now, Katerina Simonetti. She is UBS Financial Services Private Wealth Advisor. Katerina, how much do you buy into this consensus? I think it's primarily because phase one, to me at least, it's a sure thing. Because when you look at the components that go into phase one, right, it's all the pieces that both parties basically agree on. And the, the, I will even say more so, the pieces that they need. So China agreed that to, buying, um, to buying U.S. agricultural goods. That's a done deal, right? You know, in our case, we would like to see more um, currency transparency. We would like to have their markets open to our financial institutions. So despite of the news of last couple of days, I believe that phase one is going through. And I also think that market is almost taking it for granted. It's almost like it's it's bought in and, you know, already built into the consensus that it's going to happen. And I think when this happens, we're going to have a pretty positive reaction. My concern is not phase one. It's phase two. Because I think the components of phase two are significantly more important and also is something that we don't quite have an agreement on. So as one of the other things, obviously moving the markets, number one, as Lisa raised, uh, is the trade deal. That seems to be such yes. really driving kind of market sentiment and market performance. Number two might be the Federal Reserve, which has been very accommodative uh, through 2019. The market seems to be discounting maybe one more rate cut next year. Is yeah. that kind of your view and the view of UBS? So we had a view that uh, Fed is going to cut, continue cutting rates. As a matter of fact, our view, even just from quite 
recently was that they're going to cut another 75 basis points going into the next year. But we are holding back on that view now because we think that the benefit of what's happening right now is we had Fed that is extremely data driven. And economic data that is coming in is not negative. You know, it's mixed, but it is still quite positive. So I think that Fed's reaction is going to be very much uh, linked to the results of the trade negotiations. So if we have a positive outcome, if phase two starts off well, they might might not cut. They might hold off because it is such a powerful tool in their arsenal, those rate cuts. I think they're going to be reactive to you know what they see. All right. So if you buy into the consensus idea that things are going to be pretty good next year, how do you square that with surveys out of UBS showing that yep. wealthy individuals are getting increasingly bearish? That is very true. So I think that we have to look at the timeframes. I believe there is going to be a very positive reaction to phase one. Once we get to phase two, it's an uncharted territory. It's quite frankly, you know, like the, the you know, the, the season two of Succession that I know right. so, so many of the radio hosts here seem to love. And it's a great show because it is uncharted territory. And we believe that there might be a sell-off. Now, we think that there might be a sell-off, but we think the severity of the sell-off will not be quite as extreme as markets anticipated. And as a matter of fact, you know, we think the likelihood of actual recession is very low. We think it might happen. Again, we, it all depends on the trade, but we think sell-off is likely. And that's what we're getting from our clients. When clients call us and they're concerned, they are concerned about the sell-off. They are concerned about the makeup of their portfolios. And they're asking us, you know, quite frankly, what to do in repositioning. So what are you telling them now about... Yeah positioning because we you know that the fourth quarter last year particularly December was such a, a shock to the marketplace to the decline in uh, the equity markets um, and I'm sure as we get you know come up to that anniversary again this year some of your clients are going to be calling and asking what do you kind of, how are you telling them to position themselves so we tell them to broader the time frame and to your point I think that the the fourth quarter of last year was a really good practice you know it's almost like a really good test for all of us for what's to come and there are several pieces in the portfolio design that come into play here first of all liquidity so we tell clients, number one, going into turbulent markets, going into volatile markets, have enough liquidity on hand. Because then, you know, if we go into the prolonged period of volatility of negative markets, we will not have to liquidate their portfolios. Uh, the second side is, of course, focus on yield, focus on counter-cyclical asset classes like real estate, um, uh, re really changing around and rebalancing and repositioning uh, fixed income portfolios. Because when people think um, that we need to perceive recession-proof their portfolios, they focus on equity, but but fixed income, quite frankly, is just as important. Going forward, what's your biggest concern? My biggest concern is that investors who are not prepared are going into this market with too much of a bullish outlook. And that concern goes back to, you know, my days when I started as a new financial advisor in 99. And if you remember, the time frame was very similar when the talks were about upcoming, uh, possible upcoming recession. Right. But yet that was the best performing year. And people almost got a little cavalier, you know, a little got too it. brave and, you know, overweight in equities. Katerina Simonetti, thank you so much for joining us. Katerina uh, Simonetti, UBS Financial Services, Private Wealth Manager.
Let's continue our discussion of economics. The conference board uh, this morning released its leading economic indicator to walk us through uh, the details. Bart Van Ark, chief economist at the conference board. Bart, thanks so much for joining us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. What did the data tell you today? Well, the data shows for the third month that we have a moderate decline, but perhaps what's a little more important is that on a six-month basis, which is averaging it out a little bit, we now see a very modest decline. It's only 0.1% points, so it's nothing to really hugely panic about. What's interesting are some of the underlying uh, changes that we're seeing in the index. Okay. So, <laughs> just carry on. Uh, well, what is most important is that in the p- in previous months, it was to a large extent driven by the decline in manufacturing. Uh, and that actually is still a little bit of that there. Certainly, obviously, you know, new orders are still, is still quite negative. But um, what we see now in this month is that actually the labor market shows a little bit of weakening. So, uh, one of our underlying indexes is the average work week. One on the underlying index is initial claims. Both of them are now adding negatively to the index. Now, that's Sounds like bad news, but let's not forget that the labor market has been extraordinary, extraordinary strong. So at some point we would expect this. So on balance, we actually think this is actually not a terrible result. We really need to see how this is going to evolve over the next few months. Is your leading economic indicator weighted similarly to the U.S. economy, which is, you know, two thirds, 70 percent the consumer? Well, leading economic indexes always put a little bit more emphasis on production and on manufacturing. And a lot okay. of that is to, that's where you have a lot more of the volatility. And a lot of that is playing through in the rest of the economy. Services tend to be much more stable. The consumer tends to be very strong. But it are exactly those elements, actually, services and consumers, that sort of keep us, again, a little bit more moderate on uh, making sort of huge implications from this negative number today. It is interesting, though, that the trend is shifting away from the steady improvement that we had been seeing, particularly with the consumer. And we saw that again today with the jobless claims just ticking up a touch and really just a fraction and from a very, very, very low rate. But at what point do you have to start paying more attention to this is a sign of a weakening consumer. Well, you first have to see it for multiple months. You have to see considerably more layoffs uh, happening over time. And again, there's nothing of that in the works. We get a holiday season coming up. It looks like to be pretty strong as far as the numbers are, are giving us projections right now. But is that a leading indicator or a lagging indicator by the time that it gets to the point where we're, we're companies are like consumers it's a good point consumers and labor markets to a large extent are coincident indicators so they are actually an assessment of the current situation and again when we look at the coincidence part of this index so the assessment of what's happening now is actually even stronger than it was in previous months so from the federal reserve they seem to be suggesting if you look at the fed fund futures right you know maybe one more cut in september does your leading economic indicator kind of kind of makes sense given kind of how the Fed's thinking about it right now? Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, with the cut we just had this past month, uh, we do really think that uh, the Fed is now going to wait and see how these numbers are going to evolve. And again, you know, this sort of slightly negative number was to be expected. This, this market has been so strong for such a long time, this economy, that we would expect this leveling off. So yeah, it's going to be a pause for the time being. Earlier in the show, we were speaking with Danielle DiMartino Booth, and she was talking about a bit of a resurgence that we're seeing on some industrial measures, and that she expects yeah. uh, some sort of gains to be had in that sector next year. What are you seeing? 
Well, actually, this morning, the Philadelphia's Fed Manufacturing Survey showed up a little bit. So there are some numbers that are pointing in that direction. But look, let's not fool ourselves. Manufacturing production is in deep trouble, and it's still sinking. But I do think that uh, there might be something happening here. We're particularly looking at China, because a lot of this decline in manufacturing uh, production really sort of originated in China about two years ago. There, we actually see a little bit of a silver lining. A lot of overcapacity is gone. China may actually begin to stimulate the economy a little bit in order to avoid a further slow down and that will spill itself through into the global economy so yeah we would tie on to this idea that that we might see an, an easing or perhaps even a bottoming out of managing production of there you have a recession ago. in your model at any point well you know at, at some point at right. some point the recession is going to happen but you know these indexes are looking sort of six months out i i would go as far as say you know i, d- I dare to say something about the next nine months i think until the summer of next year i'd be surprised if the u.s economy would run into huge trouble with the big r word the big R word. There you go. <laughs> All right. So uh, what did you think uh, in terms of the response from CEOs with respect to trade? We are getting headlines every day that give us mm. a different story. How much is that imperative for their modeling for next well, th- year? Th- there's something unusual, of course, at the moment about this situation where the consumers are still very confident. Our consumer confidence index at the conference board keeps you know, at record levels. It's a little bit more volatile the last few months, whereas this business confidence index, which is the other thing we do, uh, has actually been declining over and over again. We know that a lot of that is tied to the trade disputes. We've asked CEOs this. We see it in our service that they do tie these kind of things. So there was a little bit of a feel in the last two, three weeks that we would be getting somewhere, but, you know... Wait, has the spread ever been further apart in terms of the business confidence versus consumer confidence? Not in the past two decades, I would say. This is, this is pretty unusual. Um, but again, it's also, of course, this whole trade dispute is pretty unusual. So it's perhaps not surprising that CEOs are reacting so much strongly to this. Do you see that in your, does it show up in your data anywhere? Maybe business investment, something like that? Yes, we, we do have uh, manufacturers' new orders uh, in there. Uh, and again, that actually picked up a little bit this month. But, you know, these numbers are very, very volatile. So we, we never take too many implications from month over month. It's the six-month average that is important for uh, And there again, I would say maybe easing at this point in time. But you're right. I mean, linking it back to business confidence, the key driver of business investment will be that confidence number going back up. So a deal with China, even if it is a small deal, will be enough in our view to actually get business confidence in back at track. Bart Van Ark, thank you so much for being with us. Okay. Bart Van Ark is uh, the chief economist at the conference board talking about the slight decline that we saw in uh, the leading uh, consumer confidence yep. figures. switch gears here and get take a look at the business of pets. Ron Coglin is the CEO of Petco. Petco was taken private, I believe, back in 2015 by CBC Capital Partners and some others. Uh, Ron, thanks so much for joining us. Love to just get an update on Petco and kind of where the market is right now for you guys. Absolutely. Well, thanks for thanks for having me. A year ago, I, uh, I joined you, and uh, we were uh, talking about taking a $100 million bet on our business by uh, taking out all products and artificial ingredients. And uh, today, I'm proud to say that not only have we removed 1.5 million pounds of food with uh, artificial ingredients, but our business has gone from declining 3 to 4% to up 3 to 4%. So we've had this contention that what's good for the pet is good for Petco, and it's proven true. 
Ron, are we reaching peak pet where people are buying health food for their dogs? You know, one of the wonderful things about the pet market is it's a growth market. So uh, I would say it's not peaking. Um, more and more, there's, there's an adage, pets used to be uh, in the outdoors, then they were in the backyard, then they were in the house, and now they're in our bed. So more and more folks are wanting to take care of the pets the way they take care of themselves, and that includes uh, avoiding artificial ingredients. So interesting here. So give us a sense of kind of the growth dynamic of kind of the, the global pet food industry or the U.S. pet food industry. Yeah, so it's a 6% growth business. Um, you have roughly 1% growth in the number of pets, but in terms of how folks are taking care of their pets, the type of food that they're serving pets, you know, they're more and more they want to move away from, uh, you know, the old Roy's of the world and towards uh, the, the better for you foods. And a perfect example is my, my dog, Yummy, he's a yellow lab. He goes, he's going on 11 years old. And before I joined Petco, I was feeding him a middle-of-the-road food. Uh, shame on me. And I switched him to a product called Just Food for Dogs, which is a human-grade food, um, fresh fish and sweet potatoes. He immediately lost 15 pounds, and he's back to acting like a puppy. I feel like this is a PSA. <laughs> yeah. You know, this is the reason <laughs> why. Yeah, but I, I want to talk about, you know, the growth market. There has been a shift, people having fewer kids, having more dogs. And I'm wondering, you know, how far along in that evolution are we? Wasn't it something like people adopted more uh, pets than, than had kids last year or something? Um, I, I've heard that statistic. I, I, I know more about pets than I do about kids at this point. Mine, mine are essentially the house, but um, I have heard that statistic. You know, on your first comment about PSA, one of the things that removing the artificials did was it regained the soul of Petco and really unlocked our, our partner's passion for pets, and it was really powerful for us. Um, but people are. They're waiting longer to have kids, and the pets are uh, replacing some of that uh, that uh, you know, loving being in the house. And I think it's good for, uh, for people and good for America. I will just say this, uh, given the fact that dogs are more likely to be uh, consistently loving than your right. children, perhaps <laughs> people are getting annoyed with getting talk back, exactly. Paul. So Ron, give us a sense you must of- must have seen my kids. Give, give us a sense of the competitive environment. Is, is the pet food business one of those retail or consumer businesses that's been disrupted by say technology, much like Amazon has done? So give us a sense of the competitive environment. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm not going to claim that that hasn't impacted the pet industry. You have the Amazon factor, you have the Chewy factor, and they've seen success in the pet market. Um, and quite frankly, Petco had to go back and retool. And that was the bad news. The good news is we did, and it's working. So um, in the last year, we've launched um, buy online, pick up in store. It's been hugely successful. We reached over a million downloads of our app. Uh, we have uh, repeat delivery. And so our online business is growing 20 plus right now. So what was a, uh, was a threat is now turning into a tailwind for us. One thing that we've seen uh, recently is a bit of volatility in the uh, speculative grade credit market. And I'm just wondering how much money you need to raise at this point, given the fact that you have a B uh, tier credit rating and things are getting a little bit more challenging for some companies. Yeah, we, we, don't, need, uh, we don't need to raise money and we have access uh, to capital as we need it. Uh, so from that standpoint, we're solid. We have two great private equity primary partners in uh, CVC Partners and CPP, the Canadian Pension Fund. 
Uh, and we're back to growth on the top line, and uh, we're looking forward to uh, sharing our results on the bottom line with our lenders in a few weeks. So we're good on that front, uh, and uh, so we feel good about our execution and our financial health. Where's the biggest opportunity for growth for Petco? I'd say two things. One is uh, digital, continuing to uh, drive our digital business. And the second is we're shifting to services. And those are services that those digital players don't have. So we've taken our grooming business from a declining 7 to 8% to a declining near double-digit business. Our training business is in growth. And uh, we are driving probably the fastest uh, vet network build-out in history and what's significant about that is, too, for the benefit of the pets, we're talking about affordable vet care. A lot of pets don't get the vet care they need because of affordability. And the second thing is, wherever we put a vet, we get the vet income, but we also get a um, four to seven point lift in our center source sales. So it's good for the pet and it's good for our business. Ron Coughlin, thank you so much for being with us. Ron Coughlin is Petco Chief Executive Officer talking about a push toward uh, more natural ingredients uh, for people's pets. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.